Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, March 22nd, 2020. The share ID numbers for Friday, March the 20th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,285. That's 14285. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,287. That's 14287. This morning, A Vision for You presents Pride and Ego, the Deadly Duo. The Big Book teaches that to get over drinking, for us, compulsive overeating, will require a transformation of thought and attitude. Yes, transformation. Change. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. The real advantage of these steps is that they are a specific and proven method for producing a transformation, a change in the way we think, a change in the way we feel, and a change in the way we behave. The 12 steps are a process designed to bring about ego deflation at depth. The process of the crushing of the self-centeredness, pride, and ego begins with pain and desperation. Until the ego is somehow reduced, no surrender nor recovery is possible. The pain of our disease, the desperation of our situation, brings us to a state of powerlessness and surrender. Steps one and two begin the difficult process of pride and ego deflation in which we exchange our pride, grandiosity, selfishness, and self-centeredness for humility and eventual maturity. The remaining steps and necessary actions continue the process of turning us towards God increasingly introducing the idea and tightening the screws that our human will must be subordinated to a greater will, to the will of God, as we understand God. The results of the 12-step process and its effects on pride and ego are dramatic. And by continuing to live a 12-step way of life, we emerge into a new consciousness, seeking daily to improve our conscious contact with God. Joining us today to speak on this very topic of pride and ego, the deadly duo, is Amy G., a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. Amy is dedicated to our 12-step way of life, dedicated towards trudging this road of happy destiny, and to carrying this message of recovery. And it's with great appreciation, pleasure, and joy that I introduce Amy G. to the line. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Leah. Dang, I could just say what she said, and we could go on to Q&A from here. 
What a great opening, Leah. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Amy G. I'm a recovered compulsive reader from Maryland. And, yeah, we're going to unpack this a little bit about pride and ego, my dynamic deadly duo, as they say. But first, let me just qualify, uh, since you can't see me. Uh, I am five feet, seven and a half inches. My top weight, I stopped getting on the scale at about uh, 170, probably put on another 15 or 20. So I was pushing 200. My lowest weight, I've also been anorexic in this program, was 102. That's about 30 pounds from what my normal weight is. I'm also or was a recovered am a recovered bulimic. Uh, that was by far and away my worst aspect of my compulsive overeating. Puking in the height of that binging and purging cycle 10 to 12 times a day. I also exercise for hours daily. It used to be called back then in the 80s uh, being pathorexic. I don't know if that term still applies, but I can tell you I used to sit on that treadmill for hours going, this is for the pint of ice cream, this is for the ice cream bar, this is for the 12 donuts. I've given a lot of my body to this disease. It's ravaged me physically as well as emotionally and spiritually. I had three knee surgeries before I even came into program from pounding on on the, you know, hard impact. Uh, that followed me into recovery. had a knee replacement a couple years ago. I've broken knuckles in my hands. I've broken my wrists uh, through excessive exercise and some other things that I'll talk about later. I'm also an alcoholic and a drug addict. If you all are catching my drift, my drift here, if there was a way to escape my feelings, anesthetize, uh, you know, what I, what was going on in my life, I wanted to do it. I mean, I was primarily a drug addict because I was trying to find ways at that point to maintain my weight. I destroyed my sinuses with snorting up amphetamines. That was my main drug addiction, as well as cocaine when I could get my hands on to try to maintain my weight because I was also getting high all the time, smoking pot, and that destroyed any kind of regular eating that I had up until that point because of the, quote, munchies after you get high. So this disease took me down. I am a bottle in the bag, living underneath the bridge, compulsive overeater. And I'm so grateful because this program has has saved my life. Um, By the grace of God in these 12 steps, I've been recovered I came into the program at 18. It took five years of hell and torture and overeaters anonymous before I gave in and let my ego go. Um, but I have been recovered for 32 years, abstinent and recovered for 32 years. And it's with great gratitude and humility um, that I say um, I am who I am today because of God and these 12 steps. You know, I have, I have a lot of quotes that I'll be giving from the, the big book, but one of my and a lot of my favorites, basically. But one of my favorites is on page 17, where it says there is a solution. It's that chapter, the solution. And it says at the bottom of the page, the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism and from me, compulsive overeating. It is a common solution. There is no secret code. It's just the instructions in the first 164 pages of this book, and it has saved my life. 
So for those of you who are uh, uh, counting, yeah, I'm somewhere, somewhere in my 50s. But if you ask me to my face, I'm going to lie and deny like the champ of days gone by, as they say. I can still do denial. (laughs) I can still do denial. But I have literally grown up in this program. I came as a, a, a girl, freshman, sophomore in college. You know, I had to learn how to go to school. I had to learn how to be home, get a job. I had to learn how to date. I had to learn how to get married, have kids. I mean, it was a crash course on growing up. But this program has stayed the course with me. And this and this God of mine that I have now has done for me that I, things that I could have never imagined. Talk about a fourth dimension. There is life in this program and via these steps that I never even imagined was possible. And it's really, truly beyond my wildest dreams. And if I can do it, you can do it. It's a one-day-at-a-time program. My sponsor used to say, whoever got up earliest this morning is the one who has the most recovery. And I believe that to be the case. So let's talk about ego and pride. Now, I was a minor in sociology and psychology, and I love delving into all these kinds of things. But when I got into the clinical stuff about ego and pride, my head started to sip started to spin. I am not a psychologist, and there are probably some on the line that have those degrees or whatever, so I beg your pardon if I'm butchering some things, but I, 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 uh, I'm like a I like to keep it simple kind of girl. But I did find some really interesting definitions, uh, and the two clinical ones that I really liked or that hit, hit for me are the definition of ego, which is the part of the mind that mediates between the conscious and the unconscious and is responsible for reality testing and a sense of personal identity. So the ego is the sense of oneself. And then pride is the opinion of oneself or one's importance based on one's achievements, be it success or failure. You know, I used to think pride and ego were just sort of interchangeable, but to me they, they really aren't. I mean, simply put, in my interpretation, Ego is my sense of self and myself and my identity, and pride is how I prove it. You know, and you wouldn't have thought that I came into OA. You know, we don't come in on a high note, as they say. And you wouldn't have thought that I had much ego coming into this program. I mean, I was beaten and pummeled and stomped into the ground by this disease. We talk about the bedevilments on page 52, and I just have to read them. My sponsor told me early on, if you can put it in I and put it in first person and present tense, it can have a pretty great effect in reading some of these pages. And so I'm going to do that Uh, on page 52, uh, second paragraph. I was having trouble with personal relationships. I couldn't control, I can't control my emotional nature. I am a prey to misery and depression. I can't make a living. I have a feeling of uselessness, I am full of fear, and I am, well, wickedly unhappy. And that's the way I came into this program. This this disease and my binging and purging and compulsive overeating had me headed towards a suicidal grave. I wanted to die. You know, I used to listen to a meeting where a guy would scream, this disease, don't you understand? This disease wants you dead, D-E-A-D, dead. And that, I never forget that because this disease will take you any way, any way that it can. Suicide on the layaway plan or kill you straight up. And with what I was doing, I was headed there. There's no doubt about it. 
And like I said, I came in in early of 80, in 1983, and I didn't get it for almost five years until 1987. I I thought I couldn't even ha- I couldn't be more torturous in my compulsive overeating prior to I get to the program. But here I was in program, relapsing on and off, on and off in the torture of compulsive overeating, chronic relapse hell. You know they say OA is like the mafia. Once you get in, you never go out. You never get out because you know too much, and it ruins all your binges. You know, that's what was going on with me. And when I look back, I can see on the surface many reasons why things were not working those first five years. For example, my agnosticism. You know, God that I grew up with, that Zeus-like character ready to zap you in the butt every time you did something wrong, I treated him like a universal Santa Claus. He didn't give me what I wanted. He didn't make me sin. You know, he didn't give me the boys I had a crush on. So I was like, to hell with you. I mean, I can even say at my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting, I was in Northfield, Minnesota. Shout out to my Minnesota peeps. I went to that meeting thinking it was another, another diet club. And frankly, if I'd known what it was, I probably would have ran the hell in the other direction. But you all started talking about the disease of compulsive overeating. I never even heard the word compulsive overeating. You started talking to me about the things that you did with food that I thought I was the only one. You know, this is a disease that wants to get up in your head, isolate you, and kill you. It wants to tell you you don't have a disease. It wants to tell you you're terminally unique. That's what I thought I was. And you all were talking about doing things with food, like putting it in the trash, wearing it off, going back in the trash, getting it, things that I never I never thought anyone else did. But then you mentioned that three-letter word, God. I stood up in the middle of the meeting with quite a bit of anger, I have to say, and I stomped out. But thank God, you all, God with skin on, someone followed me out of the meeting. And they didn't try to convince me that there was a God. They handed me the OA pamphlet. 15 questions, are you a compulsive overeater? We still have it. I love it. That pamphlet was, I mean, I read those 15 questions, and it was like a splash of cold water in my face. You know, I answered yes to every single one. And trust me, that was the first day I'd gotten in a long time because I was failing out of school. That's what my disease did to me. I was so busy binging and purging, I went from being a straight-A student, I'm talking straight-A 4-0 student, to failing all of my classes. And I read those 15 things, those 15 questions, things like, have you been treated for being overweight or do you anticipate, you know, eat a little in front of others and then anticipate large volumes when you are alone? I mean, that agnosticism was killing me. Frankly, I wanted to play God. Talk about my ego. If God wasn't going to give me what I wanted, well, then to hell with you, I'm going for it. And then balking at certain steps. I mean, frankly, step nine, that was to me, you know, I treated this program cafeteria style. I'll have a little of this, I'll have a little of this step, I'll have a little of that step. And it got me zip, nada. You know, half measures avail us nothing. It talks about that and how it worked on page 58 and 59. I love the analogy, you know, about the soda machine. If I want a Diet Coke, let's say, and it's $1.25, if I put $1.24 into the machine, I'm still not getting the soda. This program to me is about being all in. And even though at that time I was willing to admit my powerlessness, I was even willing to tell you I was going to do stuff. I was going to follow the instructions, but I didn't. I looked for an easier, softer way. And then one of the biggest ones for me was also not defining my abstinence. 
I mean, let's remember, this is a twofold disease, a physical allergy and a mental obsession. The obsession brought me to the food constantly, and the allergy kept me there. For me, those allergic substances kept triggering me. For me, that was sugar, high fat, and volume. Sugar, flour, high fat, and volume. Those were triggers for me, and I didn't know. I didn't know that that's what was triggering me, and I didn't know that I had a mental obsession. I mean, those things were all on the surface. But what was driving? What was, what was underneath it all? What kept driving me to the food and back into relapse? I mean, talk about ego. On page 58, it says here in how it works, you know, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Well, there you go. My ego said, hey, I'm terminally unique. I'm worse than all of you. Clearly, you guys aren't as bad as me. And so, therefore, I can't get it. Even I have failed away. And it's like this negative ego. Well, the big book on page 23 says that the problem centers in our mind. And I'm telling you, the reality was not all of that. The reality was that my thinking was so off. It was so warped. You know, it talks about it in step 12 and in the AA uh, 12 and 12 in step one that we have warped our minds with such an obsession for destructive, well, eating, drinking, that only an act of providence can relieve us. You know, I needed the act of providence, i.e. the 12 steps, to change my thinking. And my pride and ego, my identity, how I saw myself in relation to others played a huge part in how my thinking was so skewed. Now, I'm not saying that I know everything, and I'm not saying I don't know that where these ideas that I'm going to talk to you about came from, and maybe this is all a part of growing up, but I can tell you I had some pretty skewed thinking and some pretty skewed ideas. It talks about it in the GEN and how it works about how, you know, some of us had tried to hold on to our old ideas and the results until it was nil until we let go absolutely. I'm going to say old ideas, and I'm going to say false ideas. Because remember, in the definition of ego, and I think I said this, but these ideas that we come up with, our self-identity, they are often based on false ideas and thoughts. Often based on false ideas and thoughts. That makes sense to me. Because trust me, I had some pretty crazy ideas, and I'll get into that. But one of the ones is when I was growing up. I mean, I don't know about you all, but when I was younger, I used to walk around comparing myself, you know, to compare is to despair. But anyways, I'm a big slogan junkie. Forgive me. I'll be popping those in and out. But I used to walk around comparing myself to others, thinking, how did they get the instruction manual to life? And I didn't get it. They seemed to know what to do. You know, I had this sense that I was supposed to do something. Again, my pride. I was supposed to be somebody, my ego, but I had no clue on how to go about it. And how come everyone else seemed to figure it out? And I didn't. What was I missing? What was wrong with me? And, oh, by the way, I better get it if I want to survive in this world. And, oh, yet, God forbid you ever let anyone know that you don't have that instruction manual to life. You know, when I look at Bill's story, it's, it just always cracks me up that I relate 
to a man in the 1930s. But right off the bat in his story, on page one, the first paragraph, I can relate to how he feels and how he thinks. He says he felt heroic and how sublime that felt. That's on page one, you know. And then on page two, talk about ego. I proved to the world that I was important. From my earliest memories, I can tell you that I thought I had to prove myself to be somebody. I don't know how I was supposed to do that, but I knew I needed to do something. And then on page three, these three little words, I had arrived. You know, every time I, I even say those words out loud, I have this old sense of just exhaling or like, or like feeling relief because it means to me, and I think it meant to Bill as well, you know, that he thought, you know, he was supposed to be somewhere and he was supposed to be someone and do something. And when he said he had arrived, it was like his pride could say, you're okay now. You know, you've done what you need to do. You have arrived. You can relax. And I can tell you that I felt the same way. You know, I achieved some things in my life. You know, I was able to say that I had done some good things and I had worked hard and the result was accolades. You know, and it felt good. But like Bill, I led a double life, active in my compulsive overeating. You know, still on page on page three, I think it's still, he says, you know, out of the alloy of speculation and drink, I forged a weapon that would turn around and shred me. You know, for me, living that double, double life where I had to be somebody and I had to prove myself, where my ego and my pride drove me in that direction, there was this chasm of like the Grand Canyon between, you know, who I was on the outside and who I was on the inside. I mean, to say that my insides didn't match my outsides was an understatement. And that Grand Canyon created a sense of restlessness, irritability, and discontent that was unimaginable. They call it a disease, a dis-ease. I had a dis-ease living in my own skin. I could not handle my life. And so what did I do? I had to eat. I needed that ease and comfort. I wanted to stop the world and get off. And food, I have to say, food did that for me. For a while, it helped me survive. You know, I didn't come up with these ideas on my own. And this is not to blame my family. I am a compulsive overeater because I have the allergy and I have the obsession. No one tied me down and threw food down my throat. But the reality was, you know, I was a diplomat's kid. I lived overseas. I remember one time we were living in the Dominican Republic, and my parents sat me down. They sat down all of us kids, and they pointed a finger. And I said, of course, they pointed the finger at me. And they said, you represent the United States of America. Act like it. (laughs) I was like, what? You know, again, where's the instruction manual? You tell me to do something, but I have what? You know, how can I represent the United States of America? I'm seven freaking years old. Again, not to blame, but to say these were behavior, these were attitudes and beliefs that were developing in my mind that were false and untrue. You know, the way I was living my life before I came into program put me in a position where I couldn't win. My ego built a wall of pride, false pride, around me and false and fear, tremendous fear, where this wall made it so that no one could get in to help me and I sure as hell couldn't get out to ask, you know. 
so let me talk to you about some of these ideas that my ego came up with. And remember, these are based on false ideas and thoughts. And I came up with some doozies behind all this craziness. These are some of the things that I was thinking. My sense of self is based on my achievements, i.e. a human doing, not a human being. It's all about the willpower. My family's motto was, all it takes is a little willpower. You know, you can do anything you put your mind to. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do it. Just use your will. You know, I thought, why can't I stop eating? Why can't I stay on a diet? I should be able to use this willpower. All it takes is a little willpower. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do anything you put your mind to. And I still couldn't. Here's another one. Life is fair. That one drove me to the food more times than I can count. Here's another one. Being thin will fix everything. Talk about a fantasy. Thin is well. And here's another one. I'm not good enough. That has been a struggle of turning down the volume on that litany for a long time. Here's another one. I can control this. I must control this. I will control my life. I have to, to feel safe and secure. My feelings, they will surely kill me. My feelings are fatal. I must ignore them. I must deny them. I must stuff them down. Food was my anesthetizer. Um, Appearances, oh yes, I'm a diplomat's kid. Appearances are everything. And this one, this one just about killed me. Never let them see you sweat. Out of weakness comes defeat and vulnerability. And then straight up, food makes me feel better. And trust me, there were many more of those. Those are just the doozies. And some of them were unconscious, to be honest with you, but I was reacting to life based on those false ideas. Now, if you had those ideas, wouldn't you be selfish, self-centered, and extremely full of fear? I mean, I sure as hell was. Those character defects springboarding off of those beliefs, I had them in spades. You know, I have to stop for a minute. I was in a meeting recently, just recently, and I I heard this say, I I heard this, I thought it was great. It said, if you were to ask an active alcoholic or compulsive overeating, when they were selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and afraid, they would respond, when was I not? You know, because that's the way I was living my life. I did things in the name of my fix and my compulsive overeating and trying to anesthetize my feelings that I would have never imagined that I would have done. You know, I I was brought up, I felt with morals and character, but I had none. You know, I stole, I lied. Just to give you an example, You know, anything to seek that ease and comfort, which is what the allergy is, the phenomenon of craving, and I was seeking that ease and comfort, and I was trapped in that vicious cycle. I, uh, When I was in college, and this is after I'd come into OA, I was uh, working at an all-night gas station. I did the night shift, and I would steal money, hundreds of dollars from from the machine, the cash machine. I don't know how this never, I never got busted. And I would then buy all the candy bars and all the, all the sugar out of the vending machine. And then I would go into, yes, a, a bathroom in a gas station. You can only imagine on my hands and knees in that dirt and grime and puke. 
And, you know, at that point, you have to authorize people getting their gas. So I would be in the bathroom for an hour and people coming in wanting to get their gas, thinking everything was broken because there's no one there. And I'm in the bathroom puking, you know. And then, you know, the boss would come in or the next person would come in to take my shift and I'd I'd have to lie. I'd have to say, well, you know, there was a bunch of drunk teenagers that came in and they emptied out the Mackie machine. And... Uh, you know, so that's the kind of thing that I did, you know. So, so, so for me, what was the difference between those first five years in Overeaters Anonymous and December of 1987? You know, this behavior, this craziness, what changed? Because I couldn't stay abstinent. I mean, I got anorexic in Overeaters Anonymous. Talk about an overachiever. Um, you know, I just wanted to lose the weight, and I lost the weight, and I got to maintenance, and I was terrified because then I was really left with me. And what was going on with me? And like I said, I was working the steps buffet style. So I just stayed on that plan. And I kept getting thinner and thinner. And people started telling me in the rooms, Amy, you look too thin. Well, so I stopped going to the meetings. And then I got really sick because I was malnourished. I was 102 pounds driving in the car with my jacket on in the heat in the summer. And the doctor said to me, Amy, you need to eat. And frankly, the switch just flipped. And I started binging and purging with a vengeance. I remember one time, again, this is not to gross you out. This is just to tell you the lengths that this disease took me and how it ravaged me emotionally and how about how I felt about myself. I pinged on a loaf of bread, and I remember I went to go purge, and it got stuck. I was pulling out these, these, these loaves of bread out of, my, out of my throat, and I started to choke. And I just thought, I want to die. God, kill me now. That was probably the only thing I had to say to God at that point. Just kill me now because I want to die. Um, it, it, it was so awful. So what changed? The, the, the disease. The disease changed me. Leah talked about the pain and the suffering. It took all of that for me to put my ego aside. I had to surrender my ego at the door of Overeaters Anonymous and be all in. And it was terrifying to me because, you see, to me, my ego and my pride was all that I had. And it says on page 25 that the disease was killing me. And, and, I, and I had come to a point where I had to make a decision. And to me, surrender is a choice. I'm powerless over the food, but I do have a choice. I have a choice to surrender this program and follow the instructions or not. And this is what I came up against. It said, if you are as seriously, this is page 25, last paragraph, if you are as seriously as alcoholic as we were, we believe there's no middle-of-the-road solution. We're in a position where life is becoming impossible, and we pass into the region from which there is no return from human aid. We had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. This we did because we honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort. That spiritual help for me was working the steps. I couldn't get away from what compulsive overeating was doing to me, and I had to surrender and admit powerlessness. You know, I would never, ever, ever say that I would want to rewrite the steps or, you know, do anything like that. But in putting together this, this, this talk today, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be interesting if step one read, Instead, admitted we were powerless over our lives and that our food became unmanageable. But you know what? 
my life was unmanageable, but my ego would have never, ever let me admit that. I had to admit that powerless over the food first, my craziness with the food first, before I ever would have addressed what was going on inside of me. It had to be my admitting powerlessness over my compulsive overeating first to even come close because of that wall that my ego had built around me. I couldn't let go, but beaten and pummeled by this disease, I had to admit defeat. And so step one for me was all about that ego deflation. Um, It used to be step one in the Oxford group before Bill wrote all of the 12 steps. Step one was actually called deflation, complete deflation. You know, they didn't really, I don't know if they had the word ego at that point or not, but it was called complete deflation. And to me, that's what it was. It was me letting go of my ego and my pride. And I had to be willing to work this program like my hair was on fire, which it was. So let me talk about the food because that abstinence that kept getting triggered that I thought I had in 83 to 87 was nowhere near the abstinence that I needed to begin working these steps. Nowhere in the first 164 pages do we say that we work the steps on our way to getting abstinent. This is a disease of compulsive overeating. My substance is my alcoholic foods. I need a clear line in the sand about what is abstinent and what is not. I had to get real with the food. And the sponsor helped me because I, I, I couldn't, I was defining my own abstinence. I didn't know and I needed help. And what that meant to me, you know, the big book talks about entire abstinence in the doc op. To me, it's entire abstinence first. It's not everything, but it is the prerequisite. So I had to make sure that my food plan did not have any high fat, sugar, flour, and then also volume for me. I'm a weigh and measure girl. I have been for 32 years. I need to know when my meal starts and when my meal stops so that I'm not triggering the volume issue. And for me as an bulimic, that took a while to understand, but for me that is key. Not everyone has to have the same abstinence plan, but there has to be, to me, a plan. There has to be boundaries around the food. I need to know what is abstinent and what is not. And, and, And let me take a minute here to talk about the tools. You know, I can work the tools and be stark raving abstinence. It is a 12-step program. It is not a tool program. But let me say, it's, you know, they say that the tools, another saying is that the tools are the handrails as we work up, as we, excuse me, as we walk up the steps. To me, those tools are incredibly important and they're intrinsic in how I work the steps. You know, I get a sponsor when I work the steps. When I do my inventory, I'm doing reading and writing. I have an action plan that tells me how I'm going to work my abstinence. I work my tools as I work my steps. To me, it's not a tools versus a steps program. It's both. And especially for me, when I was working the steps before becoming recovered, there's an amount of discomfort going on there. At least there was for me. There was no pink cloud, you know. I wouldn't say it was white knuckling it until I got recovered. But I had to go through some discomfort. And those tools were invaluable to me. My sponsor said, make phone calls. I made phone calls because those tools were like not only handrails. It's kind of like, you know, when you put up a tent, you put the pegs down first, and then you put up the tent. If I was going to put up the tent of recovery, I had to put the pegs down first. 
again, the tools are not the program. But to me, you know, we need to build bridges, not walls here. So I hope I haven't pissed anyone off about that, but I'll get off that. So again, step one was about ego deflation. Step two, you know, in looking at and studying step two, especially in the AA 12 and 12, you know, and reading uh, We Agnostics in the big book, I didn't really not believe in God. The reality was it was kind of like a fake, fake agnosticism because I really wanted to play God, frankly. I wanted to achieve and I wanted to claim those achievements and I wanted to, yes, take pride in those achievements. I wanted to prove to the world that I had arrived. You know, and they say one of the best ways to deal with ego and pride is to have a beginner mindset. I really had to toss out all the ideas of what I thought I knew about God and what I grew up with. You know, they talk about old ideas. These are false ideas. And it asks us to be fearless. You know, on, again, on page 58 and how it works, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. And that's what I had to do. You know, my sponsor, my first sponsor took me to page 53 when it came to this agnosticism. This chapter, we agnostics, I, I mean, again, this is my ego talking here, but I feel like Bill wrote this, this chapter just for me because it is so much in it that has helped me to let go and tap into that power greater than myself. You know, my sponsor used to say to me, I don't care if you think it's Jesus, Buddha, or the universal vibes of a tree, as long as it isn't you and it's greater than you. And I was able to work with that. But on page 55, it says here, I'm sorry, page 53, it says here, and again, I'm going to go first person. When I became alcoholic, compulsive overeater, crushed by my self-imposed crisis, I cannot postpone or evade. I have to fearlessly face the proposition that God either is everything or I am everything. God either is or I am what was my choice to be. Yes, I took some liberty here to change that, but that's what my sponsor took me through. Was it going to be God, some conception of God, or was it going to be me? And I know where me, myself, and I got me, dying of this disease. So I had to take a look at that, and I had to be willing. And when I did that, step three became just a decision. It became very easy. It wasn't a fight with my ego or my pride because I had already given up. I had already said, God, whatever you are, whatever it is, something greater than me, I'm turning my will and I'm turning my life over. You know, again, in step three in the AA 12 and 12, a wonderful compliment to the first 164 pages in the big book, it talks about us, not that we don't have willpower, but that we misuse it, and that when we align it with God's will, and to me God's will is to be recovered and abstinent, be in service to others, then we use the will rightly. And for me, that was a great relief. It was like another exhale. It was like, yes, I can use, I can use my will to be of service. I can use my will to recover. I can use my will to take action. And to me, that was a great relief. But we had to be fearless about it. You know, I did this little study. And, um, you know, I, I really believe that Bill, not to put people on a pedestal, it's principles over personalities, but I really feel that, that Bill was divinely inspired and that he was just by nature a wordsmith and that he used words with, with being specific and for impact. And the words fearless and fearlessly 
In the first 164 pages, fearless is only mentioned twice, and fearlessly is only mentioned twice. And both times, fearless, I mean, fearlessly, for example, in the first 164 pages are both listed in the chapter, We Agnostics. One on page 53 that I just read, fearlessly face the proposition that God either is everything or else he is nothing. And then also on page 55, sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. And to me, that fearless fearlessness, you know, to me, that's a go-get-it word. That's like do it anyways, you know. No matter how furious you are, we have to do it. And then the other words, the two, the two times it's mentioned fearless that it's mentioned in the big book are in the chapter how it works on the inventory steps. About on page 58, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. And then listing in the steps on page 59 on how it works, a fearless moral inventory of ourselves. So, again, Bill is stressing the two most important factors of these 12 steps is, one, that we need a power greater than ourselves, and, two, we need those inventory steps because we need a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. So I think he used those words specifically and with impact. Anyways, I love looking in the big book, doing that kind of stuff, and looking up dictionary, you know, uh, meanings and versions. So, uh, again, I sort of digress, but I thought that was really cool. So here we are, inventory, fearless moral inventory. The decision for me at that point was easy. There was no fight there. There was no ego there. It was done. I was done. So step four through seven were the inventory. And to me, when it comes to pride and ego, basically it was a question. Hey, Amy, how's your way of pride and ego working for you? Well, frankly, clearly, it was not working for me. And it turns out I had a ton of either talking to you about negative ego and false pride. You know, I thought for sure that I was different than you, that I was worse than you, and that God forbid you ever know the truth. And what I learned through this inventory was a journey into self-awareness. I learned that I was a selfish, self-centered, immature, and incredibly, incredibly fearful young girl. I mean, I was in my 20s at that point, but I think I was probably 10 or 11 on a good day, you know, because of all of these old ideas, these false ideas, and this fear and selfish and self-centeredness. It was killing me. And so I go to do these inventory steps, and I learn about myself. You know, I learn about this ego. And then on steps eight and nine, boy, my ego reared its ugly head. Because remember, don't, in my way of thinking, I thought, you don't tell your secrets. You don't let anyone know you don't have that instruction manual. And you sure as hell don't reveal to anyone any mistakes that you've made. How am I going to apologize? Frankly, for me, it was terrifying. And I have to honestly believe, again, it was do or die time for me. It was either the pain of discipline, the pain of regret, the pain of compulsive overreading, or the pain and fear of the unknown. And when the pain of where you are gets bad enough, you'll move. And I knew that if I didn't do those amends, that I was not only not going to recover, I wasn't going to get those promises. And I truly believe in my heart of hearts that those promises are there specifically after step nine because it reveals to us, or at least it certainly did to me, that God was doing for me what I could never do for myself. 
it was clearly revealed and it was everything that I feared in making those amends turned out after I made shockingly the opposite of everything I thought and believed and proof that God was active in my life and that those promises could and would come true. You know, I had two specific incidences there on these amends I want to give you that tell you about, you know, that whole thing with the vending machine and all that money I stole, you know, I needed to make that amends. And it was by far and away the most terrifying amend that I needed to make. And in those first, and the reason why is because I had proof because, you know, there had been a mechanic who had stole something like a wrench and the guy had him arrested and thrown in jail. So I was terrified. Again, I don't know, maybe it was God that didn't get me busted on all that money I stole that no one found out. But the reality was I knew that I, I knew that I had to make that amends if I was going to stay abstinent and sober. And so in the first five years, I thought, and this is me, with my thinking, I thought to myself, this is where I know God was working, because I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to make this amends. I'm just going to do it anonymously. I'm going to pay all the money back anonymously. So what did this blondie do? She wrote a check and then put it in an envelope with no return address, thinking, okay, that's anonymous. A check? I mean, hello? So I'm walking to the mailbox. I am opening the mailbox. Because this guy would have uh, prosecuted me. No doubt in my mind. And I'm sticking the envelope in the mailbox, and I hear a voice. And let me tell you, I'm not the type of person that hears God's voice. Not pre-recovery, not post. Only twice in my entire life, and I'll share the other one with you later. But I heard a voice. And the voice said to me, and not to get all out there, but the voice said to me, you know what, Amy, do you think maybe you should talk to your sponsor about this? So I never mailed the envelope. I never mailed that, quote, anonymous check. That, to me, saved my life right there. There was a reason God was active in my life, but I didn't know it then. And the second one, I did make that amends. I did make that amends four years later. And I will tell you that I was not arrested. I was not prosecuted. And I sat down with that man that I was terrified of, and I found out this was an incredible man. I had an incredible conversation. This was an amends that I never dreamed would happen, and it was the most incredible experience. And I can tell you very clearly that God was acting in a way that I could have never done myself. I just did the footwork. I did it anyways. I was fearless by God's grace and you all telling me that it would be okay because I knew that if I hadn't made that amends, I would have not have been able to stay abstinent. I'm not saying that's always the choice for some people, but it's what I had to do. And when I did it, it worked out. And I'm so incredibly grateful because God spoke to me. And when I made that amends, it was such a relief. So to me, the amends was all about understanding that it wasn't about my pride and ego, that that was killing me, that the more I relied on God, the more I was going to be okay, that I was going to change, that I didn't have to go alone, go this road alone anymore. And now on to steps 10 and 11. You know, for me, 10, it's all drilling down on that self-awareness. What is behind all of these character defects? You know, this journey of self-awareness of where was I selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and afraid. And to me, with my sponsees, when I go through a 10 step, I go through where are we selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and afraid. But then at the bottom, I ask, what is the lie 
you are believing. And I do that with myself. I'll give you a perfect example because to me, the springboard for all of those character defects are the lies that my ego developed that said this is the way life is supposed to be, but it's false and it's not true. And I need to understand that. How am I going to do that if I don't drill down on that in my 10th step? So let me give you an example. And this is present day, folks. I may be recovered, but I am not cured. And to me, these behaviors, these thoughts, and these attitudes, they can crop up any day, any time. But now I'm equipped, thank God, by this program. And the 10th step is invaluable. So I'll give you an example. I had an angry outburst with my son because he didn't do the chores he was supposed to do. He was playing video games. He's in college. He's back home for college. So I had an angry outburst with him, and I said something I didn't want to say. So, okay, let's look at this. Where was I selfish and self-seeking? Well, I wanted the job done, and I wanted it done on my time frame, even though, to be honest, I didn't give him one. And then I wanted it to be done, and I wanted it to justify my anger and that outburst. I wanted to justify that, out, that outburst. That was me being selfish and self-seeking because, quote, I had a good reason to be angry. Where was I dishonest? Well, the chores needed to get done for my comfort. For me, in that old belief that I need to feel in control, you know, check it off the list and my life is organized and in control, you know, I was being dishonest about my need to have those chores done and to have him done it. Was I afraid? Absolutely. I'm afraid that my son's brain is going to turn to mush over the next couple of months and he'll never amount to anything. What will people think? Again, also completely selfish. Well, what's underneath that? What is the lie that I am believing? Well, remember those false ideas? One of them was, I have to control everything to feel safe and secure. I must control everything. And then the big one, appearances are everything. What you look is who you are. And that's what was the lie that I was believing, that I responded in an angry outburst. The realization was, I could have easily addressed the situation with my son, but the angry outburst was the reaction. That was the reaction. So to me, step 10 and step 11 are all about repetition. When I repeat step 10 over and over again, I constantly drill down on that self-awareness and I begin to change because I am, an, I am aware. And it's the same thing with step 11 through prayer and meditation. You know, if I'm going to surrender my ego and surrender my pride and everything I know and I believed before program, even though it was killing me, you know, I got to have something else. And if it's going to be this higher power, well, I better get to know this higher power. I better develop that relationship, you know. And prayer and meditation, that repetition, you know, repetition is the father of learning. I need to pray and meditate. And, and look, I am not the best meditator in the world, but I will tell you that that structure, that discipline, that consistency is invaluable. It's a part of my daily recovery. And because I meditate, even though I don't do it perfectly, I do a lot of praying. That, to me, comes easy. But because I meditate, I can tell you the second time that I heard God's voice. And it, it makes me cry to this day, and it probably will again. You know, the second time I heard God in my voice, I was struggling. This is a number of years ago. I was struggling with something that I felt powerless over. And I, I'm not even going into the details. But I was in meditation, praying, and just silently saying, God, God, you know, like how, how, how am I going to deal with this? And I can tell you, I heard, again, I am not this out there type of person at all. Those of you who know me know that this is not Amy. 
I heard in my head a voice. I heard God say to me, I don't need you to know how to do this. Remember that little girl that said she needed to know the instruction manual for how to live life? I don't need that anymore. I had that in my head. I heard that in my head. And that's what this program does. I have a relationship with a higher power, with a God of my understanding that I can turn over everything to. I'd have never heard anything in my head again. Trust those two things. Why don't you ask your sponsor before you mail that letter and this one? I don't know. I don't need you to know how to do it. And I don't. I have the instructions in this manual. I have this program. I have these 12 steps. I have God. You all have shown me how. And I can only hope as we move into step 12 here that I can put my ego aside and hope and pray that I have a message of depth and weight. Not so that I can say that I can fix people or say that, hey, look at me, how many sponsors I've got, but because I can have a message of depth and weight that shows me and that shows other people that there is a way out. To me, 10 and 11 is all about getting away from the self-conscious and moving into the God consciousness. And that's what repetition is for me in steps 10, 11, and 12. And frankly, you know, 12 is the great barometer of my pride and ego. Am I practicing these principles in all of my affairs? You know, am I taking this program? Am I taking my big book to my local Overeaters Anonymous meeting? And I'm sharing this program that works? You know, am I practicing these principles with my family and my children? Am I, am I doing it out there, not just in the rooms, on the phone? Am I doing it out there, and am I doing it in my life? And, no, am I doing this perfectly? Absolutely not. This is all a process. Another favorite quote in the big book is on page 133. It says, now about health, a body badly burned by alcohol does not recover overnight, nor do twisted thinking and depression vanish in a twinkling. We are convinced that a spiritual mode of living is a most powerful health restorative. It has been a process for me. It's taken a lot of years, but I can tell you those old beliefs, those false beliefs, while maybe they're not all gone, I can turn the volume down on them now. I can replace them with new ideas. I have changed. You know, let me give you some of my new ideas, okay, some new beliefs that I have that, has, that I've incorporated into my life over the years that I have replaced with these old ideas. Here's one of my favorites. I am a child of God. My identity rests here. Yes, I have arrived here because it puts my ego in its proper place. I am a child of God. Here's another one. I may be powerless, but God is not. And that has been proven to me time and time again. For me, pride is almost as dangerous as resentment. I've got to watch for that. My identity does not, or my, my identity is not based on my achievements. That's a litany that goes on in my head a lot. A human being, not a human doing. My God loves me unconditionally. I am worthy of recovery. I am recovered, not cured. By letting go, I win. Appearances do not define me. 
my feelings, and this is a big one, my feelings are not fatal, nor do they have to dictate how I react. My feelings do not always tell me the truth. And this one, oh, this is a hard one for me. There is strength in vulnerability. It is okay to tell on myself. You know, I've had to learn in this program to learn how to talk program to myself instead of listening to myself. Because when I talk program to myself, I can talk these beliefs. When I listen to myself, I listen to those shitty beliefs, those false beliefs and those false ideas. And finally, in closing, I can say with total humility and without pride how grateful I am to have been in this program for three decades and that I am a grateful compulsive overeater. You know, I used to hear that in early recovery when people would say, I'm a grateful recovering compulsive overeater. And I wanted to smack every single one of you. I'm sorry I did. But I didn't understand that it took everything that I went through and all the work that I did through the steps to reveal who I am today and give me the life and equip me with my ability to deal whatever life dishes out today. You know, it took what it took to get me here. There was no other way that my ego and what my ego had established within me that would have ever have let me go if I hadn't had gone through what I did. So I am grateful. You know, on the one hand, my compulsive overeating almost killed me. On the other hand, my compulsive overeating saved my life because it brought me to where I am today, to this program. It brought me on my knees. You know, by God's grace and mercy, these 12 steps, by these 12 steps, I am free. I'm equipped to deal with life now. I may not do it perfectly, but I have a different way now. I have been transformed. I have a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery on a daily basis. You know, I've heard in the rooms that we wake up every day unrecovered. And I, I, I think that's true. I, 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 I agree. But for me, I like to wake up in the morning and say to myself, on my knees, how free do I want to be today? Lord, help me pick up that kit of spiritual tools you have laid at my feet. Help me be free to be of service to you. Help me want to do your will today, not my will today, because I know that your will is better for me today and gives me the life that I have today. And that's all I got, folks. Thanks for letting me share. Well, thank you, Amy, for your beautiful and compelling presentation this morning. Truly inspiring. And thank you for sharing your personal experience and insights with all of us today. It's truly been a bright spot to be one of the witnesses of your recovery over these past three decades. I am grateful for that. Share ID oh, yeah. for today. My pleasure. Love you much. Share ID Amy's for today. telephone number. Okay. Share ID for today, 14,292. That's 14292. And Amy G's contact information is going to be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question to Amy by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your first name and the first letter of your last name, please. 
Ginger C. Melissa C. Irene B. Okay. Thus far, I have Ginger C., Melissa C., Irene B. Who did I miss? Kate C. I'm not catching Mary Lee R. And Eugene Oregon. Okay, Mary Lee, got you. Lisa M. Lisa M., is that correct? Kate and Maya K. Sorry. Kate C. Thank you, Kate. Suzanne G. Maya Key. Maya, I have you. Suzanne. Suzanne G. Thank you, Suzanne G. Okay. We've got a list. So let's get started. Kathy K. Okay, Kathy K. I'm going to put you there as well. Okay, everybody, please mute except for Ginger C. Thank you. Hi. Hi, Leah. Thanks so much for your service this morning. And Amy, oh, my God, wow. Unbelievable. And thank you so much uh, for the presence that obviously is in you and transmitting from you. So um, I could just hear, like, all of us, round of applause, just everyone clapping when you completed this beautiful talk. So um, I'm actually going to pose two questions. You can just see which one lands um, But, you know, you talked about how my feelings will kill me. And I think a lot of us, you know, the fear of feelings is actually worse than the actual feelings. So how are you you allowing them? And then the other question, you know, a society message is pretty strong that if I do more, I'll be more. So how am I practicing being and knowing that I am enough today? And with that, I pass. Wow, great, great. Great questions. Um, you know, this idea of doing a human doing human being, I mean, you're right, we're, we, you know, we are bombarded. And, um, and I, for me, I have to harken back to what the results were of when I was trying to strive and to arrive and what that did for me. Because, you know, they say we tried to fill the hole in our soul with a knife and a fork you know, every time that I tried to achieve and thought that I had arrived by doing something, I thought I was supposed to be okay and feel okay. And the bottom line was I didn't. And when, of course, when I didn't, you know, I wanted to eat. And I sought the ease and comfort, that chasm between, you know, what I thought I was supposed to have and what I thought I was supposed to feel and what I didn't feel. And so today what I've learned through my inventory and my relationship with my higher power is the fact that I am a child of God, that I don't need to do anything because I am a child of God, my higher power, that I am enough. And, you know, some of those things when I said about talking program to myself instead of listening to myself, you know, when I go down the black hole of, oh, my gosh, uh, you know, I, I, I need to do this and I need to do it well, and, oh, I better, and I better, I better do this and I better do that, I have to sort of thought stop and not go down that black hole of achievement because that gets me down that feeling again of where I feel I need to achieve. Versus saying to myself, I am a child of God. I know what's going on here. I'm telling on myself that somehow I think that I should be doing something to feel okay and feel better about myself. And the reality is I am a perfectly imperfect human being. And I have a higher power that loves me unconditionally. I have family. I have friends. I sort of have to talk myself off the ledge, if you know what I mean. And sometimes I catch myself doing it, 
I'm in the middle of like, you know, writing that list and checking off that list and thinking, wow, I've done it. I've checked all these things off. Look at me. But the reality is I know that that is not what brings me true fulfillment in my life. And so I can start to understand that that achieving, that the results of achievement and that pride are empty. They're empty. And it took going through that. And that's the process of the inventory steps and, of course, steps 10, 11, and 12 on maintenance. So I hope that answers that question. As far as the feelings are fatal, you know, this is where the program was so helpful to me because, you know, I was sure, for example, as a bulimic, that if I didn't puke after a meal, I was going to die. I hated physically feeling full, and I was full of fear, full of food, full of fear. And I literally had to pick up the phone and say, I, 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 you know, I, I bookended my meals. You know, I, I picked up the phone saying, I'm eating this meal, and when I'm done, I'm going to call you because I don't know how to sit through this feeling. I don't know how I'm going to stay full with a full feeling in my stomach. I don't know how I'm going to get over this fear. And what I really had to do was understand that fear stands for false evidence appearing real. You all had to educate me on what my feelings were. Frankly, I didn't even know what some of those feelings were. I had to be educated on what those feelings were, again, via inventory steps and connected to other people in the program who had gone before to show me and help me know what I was feeling and then to understand that I could get to the other side of it. And there were a lot of feelings stuffed down, let me tell you. But the reality was every time that I made it through, it was like a notch on my belt. I felt better. I felt okay. I realized that my feelings did not have to dictate how I was going to respond and what I was going to do. I could literally do nothing. I could feel those feelings and do nothing. The problem truly wasn't the feelings, actually. It was what I was doing and how I was responding to those feelings that was the problem. The feelings in and of themselves were nothing. They're just feelings. You feel them. But it was how I responded. And that was an education via the steps. So I hope that helps. Thanks, Ginger. Melissa C., you're up. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much, um, Amy, for this beautiful, really um, excellent share. And I just got a lot out of it. You were really clear. Um, I, I, you know, you gave a very specific example of your son in the video games, and I think that's like universal, right? I, I have the same kid. So um, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking like, so you talked about that and I'm just wondering if you could talk about what the amends looked like and specifically, cause I think, you know, when I have those situations with the kids and I have to like, you know, then go back and apologize, right. For my poor behavior, I, I struggle sometimes with um, still keeping to the boundaries of what, you know, there's rules in a family, right. There's expectations. And I know expectations are a funny thing, but like, how do you make the amends and still, like, you know, have the, have the boundaries of what, you know, what's the next, what the kid is supposed to do in a house? Thanks. Yeah, look, I, you know, I, I get it. This is not an exact science parenting. Talk about needing an instruction manual. Holy hell. <laughs> um, I sure could use one. But I will say, uh, with this particular incident, you know, it, it was a setup from the beginning. You know, for one, I was tired, and I threw those instructions to him as I was walking out the door. Mistake number one. Two, you know, this is, I can only address my behavior here. That's what we do in the 10th step. Two, I did not give him a time frame, you know. So I come back in, 
and they're not done, you know. And I have learned the hard way that for my son specifically, uh, because of some particular learning issues, one, it either has to be down on paper, I have to be making eye contact with him, and I have to have him repeat back or understand that he has heard me. Two, I have to give him a time frame or it will not happen. It will never happen. He's just not going to intuitively go and do those chores. And I have to accept that and not be angry about it or resentful about it. It's just the way God made him. So from the get-go, I had set myself up. And when I went back and addressed my selfishness about, oh, my God, my kid's brain's going to turn to mush. What are people going to think? I mean, really, so selfish. I had to go up to him and I had to say, you know, what I said was wrong and how I went about it was wrong. I should have given you a time frame. And next time, I will give you a time frame. And next time, I will expect it to be done or there will be consequences. It's as simple as that. But I'm sorry that I responded and reacted because that to me, it's all about reacting. I'm sorry I reacted when I should have given you better instructions and I should have given you a time frame. And to me, you know, if I could do that all the time, yeah, life would be perfect. But that doesn't always work that way. But there are consequences. There are boundaries in my family. Don't doubt it. But I can't do those in the heat of the moment because then I'm reacting off of my feelings. Remember those feelings and those ideas, those bad ideas or false ideas? I'm reacting off of those. If I'm going to set boundaries in my home, I'm going to do them beforehand in a calm manner. As best I can. You know what I mean? I may have I have a program. I may not work it perfectly, but I will have it, you know? And this is me 32 years in, okay? <laughs> so I'm still learning, too. Hope that helps. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks, Melissa. Irene B., your turn. Star one, Good morning. There oh, you yeah, go. I'm here. Thank you. Good morning, both of you, thank you so much for your service. Oh, my gosh, this podcast it, it just speaks to me so loud because for me, it's all about my mind. And in the big book on page 23, I looked it up. It says in here, therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. And you hit on that, like, right on, like, oh, my gosh, perfectly. And... In the clarity that you have with regard to the lies that you tell yourself, um, I have two questions for you. How did you get that clarity on the lies that you tell yourself? Because I know how, you know, I do the 10 steps, and I know my part, and I do all that, but I can't get to the root, to what lie is it that I'm believing you know, I know my the consequences of that lie, but I don't know what that lie is. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. And then the other beautiful thing that you said is that you have stopped listening to yourself and instead talking to yourself. I was wondering if you could expand on that, how you go about doing that, how do you identify the need to do that. I just want to know how you get in touch with yourself. You seem to have done a beautiful job. And by the way, on my BB, I gratefully recovering bulimic from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Soon I will have been abstinent for three months from the binging and purging, which is a miracle of God. But I, but my mind remains a problem. And that's, I, I don't know if those questions are clear enough or if I need to repeat. Hey, Sister Bulimic, 
out there. Yes, well, <laughs> congratulations on your three months. That's, you know, that, that's uh, awesome. Make that three years. Oh, I thought you said three months. Okay, three years. Hey, I mean, that's awesome. Three that's, years, yeah. So it's 365, three times, three times, one day at a time. So <laughs> way to go. Um, yeah, the whole thing about um, talking to yourself, um, to me, again, repetition is the father of learning here. The, the, you know, the inventory that we do and the 10 steps and all of that, you know, I have learned by, by going to meetings and learning on the phone. I mean, vision for you is an education to me. It's, it's, it's how we hear other people speak program. You know, it's almost like, you know, brainwashing, but in a good way. Because, you know, like I say, I'm a slogan junkie. I have slogans memorized, slogans, sayings. I'm repeating them. I'm speaking them out loud. I'm writing them down. You know, I do disciplines for my recovery every single day. I mean, I have to deal with my disease every day. So I'm dealing with the mental part every day, you know. So I'm in the big book. I'm reading things. I'm listening to meetings. I'm going to meetings. I'm hearing you talk to me. I'm hearing you brainwash me, frankly. You know what I mean? God through you to me about what it is that I think and I do. You know, I hear someone tell a story, and I not only relate to it, I say, wow, I think like that. You know, you say sometimes not knowing what the lie is, Sometimes I don't know what the lie is, but I hear someone else sharing something, and I think, oh, my gosh, I think that too. That's why I was so specific, and I wanted to write out what those beliefs were, because it's taken time for me to understand those or even know them. But I'm hoping that maybe by me sharing some of those, that maybe someone else out there will say, wow, I believe that too. You know, so by virtue of just immersing myself in program on a daily basis, I have learned how to talk programs to myself. And I have learned to trust experiences that validate that what I'm hearing is correct, that my relationship with my higher power is correct, because I'm hearing those things and they work. You know what I mean? When I go down the black hole of listening to myself, I'm saying things to me, Like, I'm not good enough. I can't believe I just said that. What's wrong with you, Amy? It's self-talk, but it is all negative self-talk. And when I go down that negative hole, that that black hole, I realize that i got to reel myself back in, you know? This program is a program of action. It really is. Action, daily, structure, routine, discipline, consistently, every day, every day, because when my butt is really on fire and I'm dealing with things that are completely out of my control and I'm freaking out, I have to have that discipline in place that says, okay, Amy, don't go there. Don't go there. What are you going to do? I'm going to pray. I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to work a step. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to do those things that are going to help me talk program to myself. In most cases, it's picking up the phone and talking to someone and saying, please, talk to me. Talk me through this. Okay, and that's the same with understanding what these lies are, is talking to other people and drilling down on it again and again, day after day, and understanding what my personal beliefs are that I believe in. Like you said, some of them you know, and I know you know them, and some of them you may not. It's a great opportunity to work with your sponsor on those types of things, too. Write them down on paper. Take a look. See what God says through your pen on paper about what those lies are, and I bet you a few will come up. With that, I'll pass. Thanks for letting me share. I hope that helps. Thanks, Irene. Kate C., your turn, star one to unmute. 
Hi, this is Kate from Wisconsin. Uh, you talked earlier, Amy, about, um, I think it was on page 73, about, um, let's see. 53? I quoted 53. 53. Uh-huh. Yes. And what did you say And using the I word instead of the other words? Instead yeah, I took of a little, me or God. Yeah, I want the liberty. Yeah. Okay. Um, again, this principle goes with now. This is uh, my sponsor led me through this. It says, when I became alcoholic compulsive reader, crushed by my self-imposed crisis, I cannot postpone or evade. I had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or I am everything. God either is or I am, what was my choice to be? Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you, Kate. Mary Lee R. Good morning, Leah, Amy, everyone. Um, well, so far you've answered every single question I could think about asking. So the one remaining is um, meditation. Do you um, include that in your daily practice? And thank you so ever much for personalizing and and your affirmations. They rock. Thanks. Oh, thanks. Um, uh, Yes, I do practice daily meditation. And for me, that's really hard because I am not a sit-still kind of girl. So it has been an evolution um, over the years on how I medit- meditate, and it's changed. And, and, and I don't judge it. I, I don't do that anymore. I just say, you know, I just go through what those phases are, and if I feel like I want to try something new, I try something new. And, uh, but I do make it a daily discipline because I, I truly feel that one t- that, that time that God talked to me, if I hadn't been, you know, disciplined and connected on a regular basis, I never would have heard that still small voice. I never would have. But because I suited up and showed up on a daily basis and tried to keep some sort of discipline and meditation going, I was available for that. So, yes, it is daily. Thank you. As best as I can. <laughs> Not perfectly. So. Thanks, Mary Lee. Lisa N., your turn. Lisa N. Star I'm, one to mute. Yep. Sorry, I, I was mm-hmm. thinking I did it and I didn't. Um, Amy, you were fabulous, and I love your fire. Um, the one thing I was missing here is I'm a child of God. Um, I'm powerless, but God is not. Uh, the third one, my identity. I, I couldn't write fast enough. Oh, my identity was, is sure. My identity is not based on my achievements. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, fabulous job. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa N. Maya K. Your turn. Hi, um, I'm Maya K. From New York, compulsive overeater and bulimic recovering. Um, uh, I hope you can hear me. <laughs> I'm kind of yeah. new to this. Um, uh, well. 
I just want to say thank you so much, Amy. Um, I think you're probably one of the closest um, people I've ever heard tell my story. Like, and I've been in program mm-hmm. 30 years, and um, just from bulimic and um, and just everything. I just wanted to, to say, um, and and everything, just like straight A student to failing because <laughs> of my disease and everything. So, mm-hmm. um, but I guess the question I have is. Um, you know, I, I've been going to regular OA and for 30 years, and I actually have, um, I've been really trying to strengthen my recovery, and somebody gave me the vision for you, and um, I've been, especially right now, I've been forced to just go to vision for you, and which is great. I feel like God's will, but um, I'm just curious how, um, like what you do differently uh, or what you do every day envision for you that it, because you just sound like you have such a strong recovery like I'm trying to see what extra I need to do to get more connected in vision for you because I don't feel like we do as much in regular OE than, than, than vision for you like I have a sponsor but we don't do anything like I can't explain it like we don't have a scheduled way of doing things or I don't know I mean I've gone through the steps where I feel like I need to go through them again or people go through the book or do you recommend getting like a, a vision for you sponsor I don't know if I, I if it's clear enough my question anyway well well sure yeah well yeah welcome fellow sister here in recovery you know we're all just bozos on the bus here and the reality is is like I said early, earlier, there, there, we have a common solution that works. There's, there's no secret code. Um, if, I, if I can do this, you can do this. The reality is it's, it's the instructions. It's the 12 steps. Um, mm-hmm. And the Vision for You meetings are OA meetings. It's just we study the big book. And right. I, I can't say to you specifically about what it is that you need to do, but I, I can say the instructions are there, and the instructions are the 12 steps. So that process needs to happen. And I can just, again, explain for me, it was step zero, put the food down, clear definition, abstinence, and then a process of working those 12 steps immediately. So I don't know where you are in that process. You said maybe you feel like you need to do them again or whatever. Maybe so. I'm not sure if that means a, a, a way, a different sponsor or, or what that means for you. But I will tell you the instructions haven't changed. It, they are the 12 steps. And step zero, of course, being abstinent first. So, again, there's and, – and the fact that this disease pummeled me to a point, like I said, when the pain of where I was got bad enough, I moved because I was finally ready to surrender and follow the instructions in its entirety and do whatever it was that I was told to do. It sounds like that's what you're doing. So, you know, um, anyways, I hope that helps. Thank you, Maya. For the question, Suzanne G., your turn. Hi, this is Suzanne G. in L.A. Um, thank you, Amy, so much. It's like um, you were an answer to a prayer this morning. Um, I picked up again last night. Um, and... Uh, I had the largest, well, 
this is my ego talking. I have the largest ego in the world. And um, um, I know I get emotional when I pick up too. So I'm trying to be clear. Um, I don't even know for sure what my question is. Um, I've been told to ask my higher power, but um, it's hard for me to differentiate my higher power's voice and mine. Um, I know that I I don't feel sure about answers. I've been through the steps. I tasted the freedom, um, the neutrality for the first time in my life and I had the six months and I didn't continue um, with my step 10 and 11 and a lot of other things that I found that I hadn't done. But it seems like right now, you know, um, identifying my abstinence is, is an ongoing thing. I find other things that keep coming up. But um Knowing the difference between my voice and the higher power with an ego like mine, it's like, how am I ever going to get there? I guess that's my question. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you for your question. And this also addresses something that Maya was asking the last person, too. You know, if something's not working, then we need to do something different. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. You know, so we need to keep searching. We need to keep coming back. We need to not walk out five minutes before the miracle. What what has to be different then, you know? And having just picked up last night, you know, it's, it, it's hard. I mean, I don't know about you all, but I don't know about you, but for me, like you said, you get emotional or whatever. I, I'm brain dead. For one, I'm in a food fog the next day. I can't think clearly. So there's no way if I'm in the food, that I can hear from my higher power or I could hear anything other than my obsession for compulsive overeating. Because if I've picked up, I've not only triggered my physical allergy, I mean, triggered my mental obsession, I've, tri- I've triggered my physical allergy. So the fact that you're not feeling clear right now doesn't surprise me because I certainly didn't. And there's the only way that I knew how to get clear headed was to define what that abstinence was, what those ingredients are, a clear line in the sand, and then work the 12 steps with a sponsor, a recovered sponsor. You know, those are things that, you know, we want to be working towards, is defining that abstinence and moving towards getting a sponsor or getting a sponsor and moving through the steps. I mean, I know I sound repetitive, but that, but those are the, those are the instructions. Those are this is how we recover from compulsive overeating. I mean, I'm so glad you shared. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, it's okay to tell on ourselves, this is what I needed to do. I needed to test something. I couldn't figure this out on my own. And I was trying to figure it out on my own. And I was using half measures. And I was triggering myself with allergic ingredients that were putting me, putting me again and again back into the food. So I'm so glad that you shared. And I'm so glad that you're willing to take the action steps to say what's going on and then now move forward. To us, it's all about that choice. To me, it's all about that choice. So now I'm going to surrender. I'm going to take the action step to do what is necessary to recover. And I'm not going to do it alone. I am going to do it with a higher power. But 
a lot of the beginning for me, I have to be honest with you, it was acting. I had to act as if because my belief in a higher power was I wasn't hearing anything from a higher power. All I was hearing was my disease and knowing that it was going to kill me. So I had to do something differently. And at that point, it was about just doing doing what I was told and not thinking too much about it. Because honestly, if I thought too much about it, then I usually put myself in a whole world of hurt and back in the food. So I had to just do. So if you've got that motivation now, because of the hell and the torture you feel, waking up with the four terrible horsemen that they talk about in vision for you, fear, terror, bewilderment, and something else, then, you know, um, that was motivation that I used to propel me into surrender and action. I hope that helps. Thanks, Suzanne G. Kathy Kay, you're up. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Amy. It was so wonderful to hear you today. I'm very, very grateful to be on the line. So my question to you is um, it has to do with um, uh, when, well, how can I word it? Um, I have a character defect um, of thinking I'm not good enough, which you referenced and talked about the importance of replacing that thought (laughs) with program thoughts, which I practice daily. But I've noticed that this particular character defect has not diminished very much, although I've been recovered for a number of years. And I'm wondering, is it time for me to try something else? And if so, what would that be? I practice six and seven often. I practice 10 steps regularly. And yet this particular defect seems so deeply rooted. I just wondered if there were other suggestions you might have. Um, well, you know, when it comes to character defects, remember step seven says we humbly ask for them to be removed. I, you know, I become prepared, but God is the one that does the removing. I mean, yes, there's a lot of action steps that we can take to be aware of them, but I understand what you're saying. Some of those character defects, man, and, and to be honest with you, I, I don't think I necessarily ever have my character defects removed. I don't hear. Is it me or the phone? Yeah, I don't hear either. Right. Amy, Amy's coming back. Let's see if she's coming back. Thank you. Thank you. Amy, we're awaiting on you. Let's see if she can make her way back. Again, the share ID for this presentation, since we're waiting for our speaker to return, 14,292. That's 14292 for this presentation. We'll give her a couple minutes to call back into the line. The 
this presentation, of course, is being recorded, and you'll be able to access it from our website, which is www.avisionforyou.info. That's www.avision, A-V-I-S-I-O-N, the numeral 4-Y-O-U.I-N-F-O. And, and what's it called? The title? A Vision for You. Let's just wait for Amy before we start to interject on the line, please. Thank you. Let's see if she returns. Okay, we'll give her another moment or two, and then we'll wrap up. Leah? Yay! Sorry about that. Uh, the call just dropped, and then I had to wait for her to call me back. Of so course, yada, yada. of course. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. All right, so where were we? <laughs> <laughs> we were wrapping up with Kathy Kay's question. Uh, shall we take three more? That's fine. Yep, Kathy, I'm sorry if you could repeat. Yeah, I do. Okay. Kathy, would you like to repeat your question, please? Uh, yes. Amy, you were starting to help me think about what to do when my daily disciplines are not moving my character defective feeling oh. enough. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I got discombobulated running around trying to figure out how to get back on the line. Yeah, I mean, I think that what happens is, is that, you know, on those those character defects that, that keep, keep, keep coming back, you know, for me, I have to really rely on God and ask for freedom from the bondage itself and to have God remove those character defects in the time frame that he would have and uh, an acceptance of that. And, you know, if I'm doing a 10-step or have a sponsee, for example, that has a character defect that keeps, you know, rearing its ugly head, then I might then go a little further than the 10-step and say, well, let's go back to a fourth and fifth on it. Let's do some inventory work because um, that might be something that would help to sort of dig down to what is going on, you know, what is the springboard behind that character defect. But ultimately, it's God's, it's God's time frame, and there has to be some exceptions there. Like I said, twisted thinking does not vanish in a twinkling, and this has been a process for me over a number of years with some of those harder character defects. But I would say just on the surface, the inventory work, you know, if it's, re if it's a repetitive, repetitive, repetitive character defect, then maybe some inventory work and a lot of prayer. And then accepting God's time frame on when it's actually removed or the volume is turned down on it. And that's what I find a lot with those character defects because, frankly, I can act out on any of those character defects any given day in the wrong frame of mind, if you know what I mean. But when I'm spiritually fit, then the volume gets turned down on those. I may feel them but not act out on them, or I may not have them at all for that day. I hope that helps. Thanks, Kathy Kay. Okay, we'll take three more questions before we wrap up. Margaret D. Margaret. Loretta H. Loretta Nancy H. L. Amelia mm -hmm. J. Who, who has the last initial L? Nancy L. Nancy L. That's our list. Thank you. Okay, everybody mute, please, except for Margaret D. Thank you. Your question. Madam? Margaret D., your question, please. Margaret, star one to unmute. 
Okay, can I be heard? I hear you. Go ahead with oh, your great. question. Thank Mark. you, Leah. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you, Amy, so much. Um, this has been invaluable, absolutely invaluable. So my question is about the process itself. Um, the character defect alerted you um, to do a 10-step with your son because, you know, you, you said you, you, he didn't do um, the chores. Mm-hmm. And and you saw, okay. Yeah. okay, so then you saw that your error was in the communication with him. You know, you said, well, next time I'll look in his eyes and, you know, uh, the things to make sure that you've actually done your part in the communication. My question is, how did you figure out what the harm was that was done to your son? A lot of times, like we'll say, well, I made an amends, which for a lot of people means, uh, you know, I said I was sorry or whatever. But if I don't know what the harm was, what was the harm that was actually done to your son? And did he come up to you and say, you know, when you do whatever I feel or I guess a better example is I know that if I swing my fist, that's what I did. But how do I know what the harm was, you know, like that the other person's got a broken nose? Because I'm supposed to, to the best of my ability, help with the harm that I've done. Does that make sense in that? Well, I think so. I mean, a lot of it depends on okay. what you what you say and the tone in which you communicate it. To me, tone right. But makes how do you know what difference. was the harm that was? But how do you know what the harm to him what was done? Because well, because like, my I, angry outburst character assassinated him. It had really nothing to do the angry the angry outburst was not in proportion with the incident not done. So my tone and my words expressed a way that was more character assassination than it was truly saying, why didn't you do it? Oh, okay. I, and that's a I, harm. That's a harm. Um, okay. okay. I'll, I'll pass. Thank you. Thanks, Sorry, Margaret. I could be more helpful. Thank you, Margaret, for your question. Loretta H., your turn. Good morning, Amy and Leah. Thank you so much for this presentation. It has helped so much this morning, and I can identify in so greatly. But my question is, um, you practice this daily. I'm also a firm believer of who got up the earliest is the most abstinent. And I would just, under these unusual kind of um, the new normal times, are you doing anything differently in your daily practice that is helping you um, alleviate uh, some of the unstructuredness of this time. Um, I, I have a structured plan, but I feel as though I should be doing more to add to the safety of my recovery. So are you doing anything differently or just adding certain things to your daily practice. Thank you. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. You know, for me, I, I may not always like structure, but I know that I thrive in structure, and that's part of my recovery. And in unstructured time, I need to find structure. 
So for me, that's establishing a plan. And like you said, when your plan gets thrown out the window, then you have to find another one. And for me, a lot of that, for me, for me spiritually, to me it's about that spiritual maintenance. Like you said, a daily reprieve on my spiritual condition. Gratefully, the food does not call to me. I, what I do for my food and my food plan is like breathing. But, uh, you know, in the uncertain times that you're talking about, what's important to me is my spiritual maintenance. And for me, if I can't go where I need to go, for example, I, I am on the phone a lot, no doubt, but I go to a lot of face-to-face meetings, and I'm in multiple programs, and that has been just completely stopped. So um, I do different things um, now that allow and in- reinforce my spiritual maintenance, which is uh, I'm on the phone more. I'm on virtual meetings more. I'm on Zoom meetings more because I'm better face-to-face than I, I, I like face-to-face for me. That's what I've, quote, grown up with in the room. So I'm on Zoom meetings, and I'm also um, outside. Like, I may not be able to drive somewhere and go somewhere, but like I said, I'm not a sit-still table girl, and I find God in nature and walking quietly in the woods, and I'm blessed to have that. So I take the dogs. I go out and I'm in the woods a lot more to get out of the house also so we're not on top of each other. So I am looking for structure to increase my spiritual maintenance on a daily basis during these, um, during this time, you know. But, no, everything else is the same other than I don't get to go out, obviously. So I hope that helps. Okay. Thank you, Loretta H., for that question. Our final question for today comes from Nancy L. Uh, Excuse me. Hi, Leah. Thank you for your service. Amy, um, just amazing presentation. I always uh, enjoy uh, hearing your message. Uh, Question for you. Um, So uh, my face-to-face, quote-unquote, phone meeting yesterday, I shared that I had a full plate of life on my terms um, going on prior to recent events, and the recent events um, are exacerbating all of those things, and I'm so grateful I have a program that I work hard around these issues. I'm following the advice of my sponsor. I'm keeping the um, fear turnaround on page 68 close. So my question is, um, how do, and I'll go back to the theme of your, your topic, how do ego and pride um, tie into dealing with fear, dealing with uncertainty, dealing with um, resistance to inevitable change. Thank you. You know, I'd love to drill down on that. Maybe you can call me because I could probably take another 20 minutes explaining that one um, because I think it's important because I think that my ego in developing these false ideas, it, you know, it built this wall of fear. You know, like I said, I thought I had to have some sort of instruction manual. I was afraid that I needed to have it in order to survive. And I think that the ego develops certain, you know, behaviors and thoughts based on some of those fears. So they do play a part. But I think it's, it's I would be happy to sort of lay it out a little bit more about what my process was if you want to give me a call. I know I'm going to be giving my number out in a second, so please do. I'd love to I'm not saying I know everything or I know it all, but I'd certainly be happy to talk it through with you, what my experience has been with that, if that will help. 
Also, just real quick, I forgot to mention something that was really important about my spiritual maintenance on that last question. It's also service. Service is, a, is a way, way important for my spiritual maintenance, so I'm also doing additional uh, service whenever I can, the opportunity on the phone, because service gets me out of my head, and that's important. So I forgot to mention that in the last question. Excellent. Thank you, Nancy L., for your question. Thanks to everybody for your questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Amy, for your phenomenal presentation this morning. So helpful and uh, riveting. Thank you. We're going to close. Oh, share ID again, 14,292 for the, today's presentation. We're going to close from page 164. You'll notice it's from a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.